Today, the United States is in its second month of living with coronavirus. So much remains unclear, most notably how much virus is really out there and how quickly is it spreading. What is clear is that several major shifts are occurring right now. We are moving from a model of containment to one of slowing the virus. Protective measures like home sheltering and social distancing will likely become more widespread and strictly enforced. Our time frame for approaching the pandemic will shift from thinking in terms of weeks to months, and when it comes to inevitable ripple effects, even years. In other words, we are now settling in for the long haul. This is a marathon, not a sprint. And that poses new questions, not the least of which is, how do we cope? And that's what this, our second episode in the series, is all about. I'm John Finnegan, and I'm Dean of the School of Public Health here at the University of Minnesota. Today is March 27th, 2020, and we want to share with you some stories and strategies to help cope with this new reality. We call it settling in for the long haul. I wouldn't be surprised to learn that a good number of home-sheltered people are revisiting this 1995 film, Outbreak, starring Dustin Hoffman and Morgan Freeman. You got 19 dead, you got hundreds more infected, and it's spreading like a brush fire. You gotta isolate the sick, and I mean really isolate them, Billy. We gotta get everybody else back into the houses, we gotta keep them there. We're doing that, Sam. No, we're not doing it because I just drove through 100 people. And if one of them has got it, then 10 of them have got it. And if one of them gets out of Cedar Creek, Billy, then we're in deep and we're already in deep Remember video stores? Most put this film in their thriller or drama sections, but some filed it under science fiction. And that was just 25 years ago. I'm Michael Joyce, and I'll be reporting this series, a series that we want to be about reliable information and real stories, not science fiction. In today's episode, we'll share stories and strategies about how to cope as we settle in for the long haul with coronavirus. And I'd like to start with a story of my own. Let me introduce you to my nephew, James. I'm James Williams, and I'm an English teacher in Dalian, China. It's a coastal city in the east, northeast of China, between South Korea and Beijing. James was on winter break traveling around Asia when the outbreak gained momentum in China. By the time he was allowed back into China, he had already traveled through South Korea and needed to be quarantined for two weeks. I Skyped with James just a half hour before his quarantine was being lifted and asked him what it was like and how he coped. Well, my strategy was just to switch between uh, various things I have to do in my house. So, I mean, I have a piano and uh, some stuff I can do online as well as TV, video games. I just kept switching from activities to activities. The big thing for me was exercise because typically I'm exercising for an hour and a half, two hours daily. So before I learned that this was going to be the case, I had purchased a pull-up bar, uh, a jump rope, uh, some resistance bands. And I had those delivered to me before I got home and then I developed a daily routine. So the first thing that we recommend is really maintaining a daily routine. That's Dr. Craig Sawchuk, a clinical psychologist at the Mayo Clinic in Rochester, Minnesota. It is unbelievable 
how therapeutic normalcy can actually be. And as we've experienced so many of us significant disruptions in our daily routine, sudden losses of jobs, being redeployed, you know, to being back home in some instances, that disruption in daily routines is a really important thing that, that we need to address right out of the gate. Dr. Sachuk says there are two other strategies for helping preserve our resilience through this pandemic. The second he calls refilling the tank. In other words, activities that energize us both physically and mentally. So these can be things like practicing relaxation skills, getting involved in an exercise or a movement routine, you know, getting outside, going for walks while we're still being conscientious about maintaining social distance. This could even be things like tinkering around in our yard. Um, the brain really loves novelty, and that's one of the things that we got to watch out for if we're binge-watching um, TV for, for too long, giving our brain some novelty. So think about um, doing something new, something different uh, for your brain. Of course, the most novel thing for most of us these days is the pandemic itself. For better or worse, it rivets our attention. And that brings up Dr. Sawchuk's third strategy. So the third and final thing that we recommend is connect and disconnect. You know, we're being placed in a, in a situation where there's a lot of stress going on with us, the people that we care about as well, too. And for some of us, we actually are in an imposed isolation or quarantine, and some people are in a situation of responding with the self-quarantine. So this is where we can leverage um, technology and staying connected uh, with individuals in our lives. So the basics around phoning, texting, using video conferencing, all those things that are part of our lives, we may need to step that up. So being able to get connected, share resources, and problem solve. This is among one of the most genuine things that can come out of the face of adversity. Um, and even kind of looking at yourself and, and what are you able to do uh, for your fellow human. But once we start thinking about how we stay connected and the technology we use almost hourly to do so, you can't help but wonder about our older adults. Many are already socially isolated, and the older they are, the less likely they are to be tech-savvy. A 2017 study by the Pew Research Center found that about one out of three adults over age 65 use social networking. About 40% have smartphones. But when you start looking at those over the age of 80, about 80% never go online, and only one in five have a smartphone. Those are the people I worry about. Remember James from earlier, the teacher in China? Well, this is his 87-year-old grandmother, Eileen Williams, who does have a smartphone and does keep up with global news, videos, and family online. Uh, there are many factors in aging that make it difficult for persons to adjust to new things. A lot of people in this age group rely really on outside stimulation uh, in order to keep going. And uh, this is a really difficult time for them. Uh, so this is a real issue. And I would encourage anyone who knows persons uh, that fit in that category to, to uh, you know, write them or send something to them just to have uh, something come in the door that's... Uh, not expected and, and brightens the day. 
Dr. Tatiana Shippey is a social gerontologist at the University of Minnesota School of Public Health. She not only studies issues like ageism and isolation, but even chose to live in a nursing home when she was a 23-year-old graduate student, so she could actually feel these issues as deeply as she tried to understand them. So what do we have? We have all these older folks who are in age-segregated places like assisted livings and nursing homes, many of whom have no family ever visiting them. I mean, those are the folks that I think would should be our prime target. How can we, as the outside community, become more involved to try and ameliorate some of the negative effects of loneliness and isolation, which we know, I mean, there's so much research about how bad it is for one's health. Well, maybe, maybe this is an opportunity. Maybe there could be some silver lining out of this that we can try to go upstream and really try to create more intergenerational connections. Maybe can we partner up a nursing home and a school? You know, so that's where the community has to, that's why the community approach, I think, has to happen. But remember, our Mayo psychologist, Craig Sawchuk, mentioned both connect and disconnect. Here's why. We want to think about functionally disconnecting as well. And this is where we get into the area of social media and the news. And again, staying informed, staying connected, those are really good things. We just have to watch out where that line crosses, where it becomes almost too much of a good thing. So if we think about the news, um, really try to stay with one or two reliable sources. Maybe schedule it so two times per day, 15 to 30 minutes is about the right dose that you need, and you'll be as most up-to-date as you need to be. Watch out for marinating in the news all day long, as that can also uh, invariably um, introduce fear, anxiety, or even despair in some of these cases. Many of us are feeling disoriented. Our schedules and routines have been turned upside down. Making matters worse is the rapid-fire pace of both coronavirus news and its spread. It feels a lot like jet lag, that foggy, altered sense of time. Like many of you, I'm now working from home. Those distinct places and activities of my daily life commute, office, gym, home, and gatherings with friends are now either gone or morphed into one. And I don't even have kids at home. I'm in the position where I have a three and a five-year-old. And although our daycare is open for essential workers, we're trying to do our best to do social distancing and have our kids at home. So my husband and I are trying to work, and having our kids at home. That's Dr. Chris Gorman. Her work at the Center for Educational Innovation is helping University of Minnesota professors transition to online teaching during the pandemic. She and her husband were looking for a solution for the long haul, one they could sustain over months, not weeks. Thanks to their employers, they've come up with a 50-50 solution. He works mornings as a manager at a nonprofit while she's home with the kids. Then they swap. What I like about it is that when I'm with my kids in the morning, I'm with them. And I'm not stressed about whether this walk needs to end or if we can't stop to look at the ducks. We just take whatever time we need. And I think for me, that's been the real gift of all of this. It actually seems like it's going to be possible to do this for the long haul. 
And as this pandemic goes into its fifth month globally, one of the heartening things has been hearing these stories of adaptation and innovation. I wanted to hear about more of them. So I reached out to Terry Esposito. She's the director of the Shoreline Early Childhood Development Center near Mound, Minnesota. I've heard different things that parents are doing, trying to get the kids out and busy exercising. I've heard things like picking up trash, doing cosmic yoga um, on YouTube with their kids. Neighborhoods are setting up window walks, they're called, where this week is all teddy bears in the windows. And so kids can go for walks with their families and look for teddy bears in people's windows. There have been hearts in windows and shamrocks in windows and different things like that. So I have grandparents getting involved and doing activities over FaceTime, like reading stories to the kids. So the grandparents don't get depressed because they can't see anybody either. (laughs) Some stuff on the web, the Cincinnati Zoo has online viewings of the animals and the Georgia Aquarium does and the Minnesota DNR has Eagle Cam. So people are visiting some of those just to keep kids seeing different and new things. So It's that brain novelty psychologist Craig Sawchuk was talking about. And in my reporting for this podcast, I came across a fair amount of something else Dr. Sawchuk and I talked about, altruism. Well, this is an incredibly stressful time that we're all in. Our natural predisposition is towards resiliency, and altruism is one of those wonderful human traits and characteristics um, that does come out. And in closing this podcast, I'd like to share some more of that altruism with you. Some thoughts from the six people you just heard from. That is so important, using this opportunity to really mind our manners, really be conscientious that we're all under stress to a greater or lesser extent. People will certainly vary in terms of the buffers that they have and the resources they have available to them, but do know that everybody is struggling in in their own right. Looking through Instagram and other social media, I do have some friends in Spain that are DJs, and they've opened their windows and done daily DJing sessions for their neighborhood. Whether the neighborhood appreciates that or not, I'm not sure, but (laughs) you you did see some people dancing on their balconies. How I hope to feel at the end of this is grateful. What can we do right now? Because these folks are most vulnerable in so many ways. The reason they're in nursing homes and in assisted living is because they do have those additional underlying conditions. So functional decline, cognitive, and and other chronic conditions. And now they're totally isolated. So we're just taking it a day at a time and doing the best we can. And overall, we just love kids. So that's our important role. This is not only the thing that connects us, thankfully. There are many good things that connect us. But we have got to start thinking much more globally uh, than we have ever done and recognize that it makes a difference that people are healthy in other countries. Uh, It makes a difference that we share knowledge. I I mean, the the idea that this is only about me has got to go out the window. This podcast is a production of the School of Public Health at the University of Minnesota. For more information on coronavirus, as well as some links we highly recommend, visit our website at sph.org.
www.umn.edu. Today is March 27th, 2020, and the number of confirmed COVID-19 cases worldwide stands at about 555,000, more than double what it was one week ago. The United States now has the most known cases in the world. Thanks for listening, and take good care of each other.